This morning, we'll be reading from Micah, chapter 6. I hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beorah, answered him, and what happened from Chittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is assured, uh, that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? You rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine." For you have kept the statutes of Amri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? King, uh, King Jesus, I, it is our desire that we would come um, before you desirous to hear what is that you would have for us this morning as we consider Micah chapter 6. I just just confess that I am weak and that uh, unless you uh, show up and through your spirit would um, 
bring um, cohesion and understanding from my uh, my words, Lord Jesus, they have no lasting effect. And so I just pray, Lord Jesus, uh, that you would um, incline my heart to hear what it is that you would have for me, that you would be so kind as to incline our heart to hear what you would have for us, and that we would be um, people that are desirous to see your name be high and lifted up this morning, that we would be um, um, stirred to worship you and out of uh, worship that we would be obedient to the things that you would call us to be obedient to Lord Jesus, not to earn anything legalistically, but that we would be people that are so marked with the reality of what you have done in the face of Jesus, um, that we would continue to be holy as you are holy. So my prayer is that we would um, desire that, that you and your power would enable it for your glory, for the good of your blood pot people. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to Windsor Community uh, Church. If you're new with us, um, we're continuing to study through the book of Micah together. Um, We're in the middle of an Advent season, which is a a time of celebration where we consider the first coming of Jesus. And um, we as a church have uh, desired to celebrate that season by studying through the book of Micah. And so this week and next week, we're going to do that, and then it's going to um, uh, land in culmination um, on Christmas Eve. And um, we've entitled uh, the sermon series, Who is a God Like You? So um, in answer to that question, I was just pondering that this week, um, thinking about the reality that we're walking towards Christmas. Who is a God like you? Um, We celebrate Christmas for a lot of good reasons, but one of the best reasons that we celebrate Christmas is an answer to that question. Who is a God like you? Answer, no one is a God like our God. No one is a God like our God. Pardoning iniquity, passing over sins, the sins of idolatry, passing over the sins of covetousness, passing over injustice, and then granting mercy, even mercy mild. And we've seen all of those truths um, in the book of Micah thus far. Micah is the mouthpiece of God sent by God to God's people to declare God's truth. He's one of several Old Testament prophets, the spokesman of God um, to God's people. And he's speaking, we remember, in a time of calamity. The nation of Israel is broken apart The 10 tribes are in the the north, the two tribes are in the south, and the 10 most northern uh, tribes just got wiped off the face of history by the Assyrian nation. And now Micah is speaking to the, the people that are left, beseeching them to repent and believe and follow the one true God, the God Yahweh. And it is in that context that we continue to look at Micah chapter 6 this morning. 
Um, I've entitled uh, the sermon, That You May Know. That You May Know. And although that idea is not unique to uh, Micah, let alone Micah chapter 6, I feel like it was helpful for me in wading through the chapter to help understand uh, what Micah chapter 6 is talking about. And it comes from verse 5 all the way at the end of verse 5, if, you're, um, if your conscience allows you, circle that, um, underline it. The very end there, it says, uh, that we may know the saving acts of the Lord. That we may know. So the roadmap this morning, um, like Dan has faithfully done over the last several weeks, we're going to attempt to take this entire chapter and uh, slide it into a 35-minute sermon. We're going to get it done. And then we're going to look at the phrase that we may know, and, and we're going to consider two specific ideas that come out that actually hang under that premise that we may know. And the first one is that we may know God's commitment to his people. And then the second big idea is that we may know God's commitment um, to his purpose. So his people and his purpose. And then um, Lord willing, time allowing, we're going to look at a couple verses that instruct us as to how we ought to respond to those two truths that God is committed to his people and God is committed to his purpose. If you don't have your Bibles open already, I'd encourage you to do so. Find uh, Micah chapter six and just follow along as I reread, um, starting in verse one. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your Case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. What generally comes to mind when you read verses like these verses? What emotions are uh, stirred up? What thoughts are stirred up in your head when you read verses like these verses? I want to take a moment and I want to paint a picture of what I believe is happening in these verses. And if any of you are like me and you're reading through the prophets, the question about who is speaking and who is he speaking to is almost always in question. You can't take it for granted. Once I figure out who it is that's actually speaking the voice and who the pronouns are actually referring to, it seems like it changes. So we need to be careful as we consider and walk through this text um, so that we might give word to he who speaks and the object of what he's saying. Um, I'm inclined to believe that verses one and two of Micah are Micah's own words. Instructed by God, but Micah is the mouthpiece and the speaker. And Micah is calling God's people to hear God's word. He says, arise, plead your case. That is God's case. Before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. That is 
God's voice. See, Micah is saying, hey, listen up, people, mountain and hills and foundations of the earth, hear what the Lord has to say to you. And Micah uses a legal term in verse two to communicate the legal procedure that is about to take place where the created world is going to bear witness to the creator indicting his creation. And in verse 3, the voice changes. Micah is the mouthpiece, but the speaker is now the Lord God Almighty. And he says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. In other words, my people, what reasons do you have to be tired of me? See, the assumption that the Lord's two questions have is that the Israelites believe in some way, shape, or form is that the Lord has actually wronged them. Jump down to verse 9, 9 through 16. We're going to come back. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a man of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow making you desolate because of your sin. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And that which you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statues of Amir and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsel, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Micah, speaking again concerning the Lord, The Lord cries to the city. The city in verse 9 is most likely Jerusalem and its people. And Micah says that it's wise to fear the name of the Lord. End of verse 9, right? The Lord now starts to speak and God says, Should I pardon the wicked when they stand guilty before me? And his answer to his own question is no. That he will be the one that brings about punishment. Verse 13, right? Therefore, I, the Lord, will strike you, my people. And what follows in verses 14 and 15 is the prescribed punishment. That they will toil that they will eat, that they would work, that they would sow, that they would tread grapes, and that none of that would be of any gain to them. That they will not be satisfied because, verse 16, they listened to the influences of two northern kings 
and those northern kings brought judgment on themselves. And now because of their sin, God will bring it to bear upon them. Recap, here's the picture. The triune God brings an indictment before his people where the created world is summoned to consider and to watch and observe as the creator indicts his creation. Where he finds them guilty and he foretells of their punishment. Micah Micah chapter six, go ahead and close the book. take a step back. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a theme that's found in the book of Micah, right? Maybe in lots of other ways, it's uh, the theme of the Old Testament. I remember growing up and the pattern that was communicated to me when I was growing up in the church is that God's people sinned, He brought about punishment. They were okay for a little while and then they fell into sin again and the cycle continued What do you think about when you read texts like this one? How does this text inform our answer to the question, who is a God like you? What picture of God is created in your mind? Who is a God like you? Well, he's a God that's holy, one who loves justice, who takes sin seriously. He's a God who is a righteous judge who determines the difference between good and evil, holiness and sin. He's a God that requires perfection, a God who not only declares the verdict, but is the one who actually carries out the sentence. All of those things are true of our God. But let me have us consider that our God also wants us to know his commitment to his people. And that commitment to his people is front and center every time actually when he moves towards his creation in light of their sin. That reality that God is committed to his people was true the very first time that sin entered the world and Adam and Eve turned away from God. It was God who was walking in the garden, finding them. Seeking them out to restore the broken relationship that we had created because of our sin. See, his commitment to his people was there the first time the words of curse were delivered. In Genesis chapter three, when he gave promise to send the serpent crusher to deal with our issue of sin. His commitment to his people was true when he protected Noah and his family in the ark. His commitment to his people was true when he beckoned Abram to become Abraham and when he spared Isaac, his son. His commitment was true when he gathered his people out of Egypt. It stood still true when they rebelled and doubted him at the Red Sea. 
It stood true when they demanded an earthly king or turned to false gods when they plunged into civil war. God's commitment to his people preserved his people. It was still true. Even here in Micah chapter 6, where he brings forth an indictment onto them, he hasn't yet washed his hands of his people. See that? Do you see the profound, steadfast commitment our God has for his people? Consider even the last few words in verse 16. What does he call them? He says, my people. They are still his. This last week has been a harder week for me personally. Battling my own sin, my own pride, my own ego, my own proclivities towards sin, lust, feeling um, as a, a failure, not living up to my end of the deal, feeling guilty about all of that, feeling like it's just never really gonna be any different. That was my week. If you called me on Wednesday morning and said, hey man, how you doing? I'd be like, I'm, I'm doing horrible, actually. I feel like I've just kind of been spent. feeling like I just hadn't held up my end of the, the, the deal. Um, confession, feeling guilty about not wanting to uh, preach this message this morning. Who is a God like you? See, our God is committed to sinful, undeserved people like me and like you. Where he hasn't washed his hands or given up on his blood-bought children. You see, this text does speak the truth that our God is angered by his people's sin, that he desires them to live and to be holy as he is holy, yes. That all is true, but it also shows that he is still committed to them even in light of their sin. That he hasn't moved on, that he isn't fed up with their failures or with my shortcomings. In the midst of God's pronounced judgment is the ever-present reality of his forbearance and his patience towards those who trust and believe in him. That is our God's commitment to his people. And that commitment to his people flows out of his commitment to his purpose for them. Look at verses four and five.
for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aram, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened at Shittim and Gilgad, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God, through Micah, draws our attention and the Israelites' attention to recount their past, their history. One that is marked by being brought up out of Egypt. Many of us know the story. The people of God migrated into the land of Egypt and they grew and they multiplied and out of fear, the Egyptians enslaved them. But God didn't leave them in slavery. He rescued them a picture of the ultimate rescue that will come in the face of Jesus Christ. And then God leads his people out of slavery into the land of promise to their inheritance. A picture of the ultimate inheritance that we will have one day with Christ. And he gives them Moses and others to help shepherd and guide them to this land. But what do you know? There's already people there. And God chooses to continue to bless the nation of Israel as he conquers nation after nation after nation after nation after nation. And at the very um, uh, footstool, at the very precipice of acquiring the inheritance is a nation, the little old nation of Moab. King Balak. He hears the nation of Israel, and more importantly, their God knocking at his door. Knowing that they have laid waste to many other nations, Balak calls for Balaam. As best as we know, Balaam is some, poor, uh, some um, pagan seer that has some kind of insight and credibility within the society. And so Balak says, hey man, you gotta help me out. This nation's right at my doorstep. I need some help. I know, um, Balaam, if you curse them and bless me, that's what will happen. So come, come this direction and come help, uh, help me out here. And so Balaam, uh, it says in Numbers 22 through 23 and 24 is the story. Um, he's motivated by profit and so he goes and he rides on a donkey. Many of us know the story. He's riding on the donkey and the donkey stops cold in its tracks because somehow this donkey sees an angel of the Lord in front of it with a drawn sword. And the donkey does whatever donkey I would want to have for it to do. It runs the other direction. And this happens a couple different times and Balaam gets frustrated with the donkey and beats the donkey and God opens the mouth of the donkey and he says to Balaam from the donkey's mouth, what are you doing? I've been faithful to you all this time and now you're just beating me. What are you doing? And God miraculously opens the eyes of Balaam to see the angel of the Lord with the drawn sword ahead of him. And Balaam out of uh, appropriate response says, 
what do you want me to do, Lord? And the Lord tells him to go to Balak because he has something to tell Balak. So Balaam and Balak go. Balak sets up a, uh, uh, an altar and starts creating sacrifices unto the Lord to beseech him to, to, to break ties with this other nation that's been disobedient to you, by the way. They're not worthy of you, will be worthy of you. Just bless us and curse them. And three different times, God says to Balaam, who then says to Balak is, no way, not gonna happen. They are my people. Now, what does all that have to do with Micah chapter 6? Consider for a moment the Israelite nation is at the doorstep of beholding the promise with growing expectations, but probably growing questions in all reality. Like, is, is God really committed to us? Like, yeah, I know he's brought us out of Egypt, but, but like, is he really gonna get us where we need to be? I mean, we're just fickle people, are we not? Can't blame them. Like, is, he, is God really, yeah, he's been faithful in the past, but is he really gonna do what he says he's gonna do? And God draws their attention to Balaam. Micah chapter 6, a nation on the verge of destruction with plenty of doubts about the goodness of their God, with plenty of questions about their commitment, God's commitment to them, and God draws their attention to Balaam. Do you remember when I brought you up out of Egypt and got you at the doorstep of promise, and then what happened? Why would now be any different than then? And then God, in his kindness, shows them that he conquers Moab. And then not much longer in Numbers chapter 25, the Israelite nation rebels against him again at this place called um, Shittim. And, and God, in his kindness, in his forbearance, in his commitment to his people, um, restores his relationship with them at Gilgad. Again, if God's ultimate purpose was for blessing then, even in light of their sin and disbelief, how is Micah any different? Who is a God like you? No one is a God like our God who stands constant in his purpose for his people. So how does God desire for us to respond to that this morning? Knowing that he's committed to his people and he's committed to his purpose, what, is, what does that look like? Well, let's look at verse 6, 7, and 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, with the Lord? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I think Micah is the mouthpiece here, but he's speaking in verse six on behalf of the Israelite nation to God. And a question is raised by the Israelites to God. They say, what shall we be able to uh, bring to you when we come before you? If you just look at some of those ideas, their self-sacrifice, it starts pretty low. And then it increases in stature from verse six to seven, concluding ironically with the statement, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, which is actually what God, our God, did. Where he sent his own son of himself to live the life that we were required to live, where he was put to death, the death that we deserved, where he rose three days later, conquering the the power and the penalty of sin, and where those who would trust in his life, his death, and his resurrection um, could be saved. That's the gospel where we could become his people experiencing his blessing. Now, the voice changes in verse eight. And I actually am inclined to believe that Micah is the mouthpiece and he's also now the speaker. And he tells Israel, he's told you, O man, what is good. There's a lot that could be said on this verse, uh, lots of sermons that have been written specifically on the three concepts to do justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly with your God. But what seems important in light of studying Micah 6 as a whole is that God through Micah draws a dark line of distinction between obedience that's born out of legalism and obedience that is born out of worship. The Old Testament sacrifices, as well as doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God, are areas, all areas of obedience that were deemed good in the Old Testament. See, Micah doesn't denounce the heart Excuse me, he doesn't denounce the action of obedience, but instead questions the heart motive behind them. Verse six and seven show a heart trying to gain acceptance to God through their own merit and works. Whereas verse eight are acts of obedience that flow out of worship. Worship that is stirred up by considering the redemptive acts of our God. Specifically in this text, Mike draws our consideration to the fact that they already knew God's requirements. Beginning of verse eight, he has told you. Past tense, he's told you. 
And instead of fostering obedience motivated by God's redemptive work, they had forgotten their identity and now work out of the belief that they are lacking something. So how does that all intersect us? How does knowing his commitment to his people, knowing his commitment to his purpose and distinguishing between legalistic obedience and worshipful obedience, what does that have to do with us today in Northern Colorado? I would have us consider that that's where we live. If I'm honest, it's easy for me to forget. Easy to forget God's commitments, either to me or to his purpose for me. Forget his redemptive work and instead put in its place the burden of my obedience to make me right before God. Being either dissatisfied with his purpose or believing that he might just be done with me after he hears about this one. Who is a God like you? No one is a God like our God. Pardoning sin and granting mercy, even mercy mild. And in the light of this text, in the light of, of, of Micah as a whole, and in light of Christmas, I started asking the question, what is the, is, is, what is the, the, the way in which I fuel worship so that I might have obedience that flows from worship? And for me, and I would argue from this text, it's about remembering. The uh, Christmas season, we're coming up on the end of the year. Some people don't like New Year's resolutions and kind of that introspectiveness. But I would argue that God knows something about us for us to consider to remember things. That there's something healthy and there's something good and there's something profitable about having intentionality about remembering what it is that your God has done for you. Real simplistically, Emily and I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago with some dear friends of ours to sit around the table and to hear from one another ways in which um, God has shown kindness to them this year. Mm. And there, there was some high highs like the celebration of kids being born. And there were some low lows around the table. And then we got the opportunity to uh, celebrate God's kindness for said family through prayer together. Like I need more of that in my life. I need more intentional time to consider, to take thought, uh, captive my thoughts and to remember what it is that God in his kindness has done for me what he's done for my family, 
His faithfulness to forgive in light of my sin. I need people in my life to help orient my mind towards that. Help me believe that my identity is based on the reality that he shed his blood for me. I want to grow in remembering. I want remembering to to be spurred towards worship and I want worship to overflow into obedience in my life. My prayer is that we as a church, that we would know who it is that is our God. That no one is a God like our God. I hope you can take that this Christmas season and you can um, be uh, uh, an initiator maybe around your, uh, your community group or around your uh, family and just ask the question, how has God shown kindness to us this year? I think you'll be greatly served. That we could grow in remembering who it is that our God is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I just do confess that I do not remember who it is that you are enough. And, and yet in your kindness, in your steadfast forbearance, you find it good to call me your son. That even in light of my sin, that you would stand forever committed to me because of what you have done in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray as we um, take this opportunity to walk towards Christmas, towards the end of a year, that we would um, take the opportunity and leverage it so that we might remember who it is that you are in our own lives this calendar year that we would be people that are motivated out of, of worship, not motivated out of a desire to earn anything from you. That we desire to be with you as you desire to be with us. And so I just pray that you would have your way with me, with this church, that we would be marked as people who are yours. We want to celebrate that. Oh, Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus, let me send us out with this reality, just um, thinking about our obedience as something that's fueled out of worship. Uh, let's just read this from Colossians uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Get this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance 
of the saints in light. Let us go this Christmas season celebrating the reality that Christ has qualified you. Amen? Amen. Have a great week.